Amen. If you have your Bibles, there we go. There they come. One. Thank you. <laughs> Acts 11. There you go, Acts 11. If you have a real Bible, you would not have been able to see it. If you had a fake Bible, you would be able to see your words. We are continuing on in Acts 11. Um, last week we did all of 10 and the first portion of 11, verse 18 verses. Now today we'll be in 19 through 30. We're simply journeying through the book of Acts together, uh, section by section. Let's read 19 through 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the, belie- to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's let's pray. Father, I pray as we uh, as we study your word this morning that you would help us first of all understand your word, but Father, not just understand it mentally, but you would help us see the glory of yourself, your Son, your Spirit in these words. It would not just be an academic exercise, nor would this just be a a mental exercise, but it would be both where we would understand you and worship you because of who you've revealed yourself to be in these words. And Father, we give you praise, and it's in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Just a very brief kind of recap. Last week we talked about God's heart and plan is to save a people made up of people from every tribe and every tongue. And that He has made a way through the blood of His Son Jesus to rescue all of these people. That that every person, every ethnicity, no matter the background, no matter the race, no matter the history, no matter their current outlook on life, can come to faith in Jesus Christ. That He has planned not to save every person, but to save people from every tribe and every tongue. And that we must be humble 
believing that God is certainly, first of all, worthy of this, that He is worthy to be worshipped by every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And that we must be humble if we're going to be used by God to be a part of bringing this to be. Then, as we think about the truth of God's gospel moving, as the good news of Jesus dying on the cross, living the righteous life, rather dying on the cross and resurrecting, and this being good news for people without hope before a holy God, that if we're going to, as we move this gospel forward, as God uses people to move this gospel forward, we must, again, just recapping from last week, there's many things we must do, but certainly these things, according to last week, we must get over our prejudices. And we must be wise and gentle, growing and knowing when to say and what to say, and desiring to worship our God and that others would worship Him too. But this is all hard, right? I mean, these, these, the things we talked about last week, and I would encourage you, if you've not heard it, go back and listen to it or re-listen to it. These are challenging. It's hard for us to be about God's mission in general, let alone to be about God's mission to all the people that God cares about. It's difficult. And so I hope this week, as we look now to what's happening after this kind of this move of the gospel towards all people, the, the Gentiles, I hope that this week we would be encouraged by kind of, now how does God do this? How does God begin to, to actually work this plan out? Hopefully we can find some encouragement as we, by God's grace, do the same thing. The first thing I want you to see is this, is that God's working is our confidence. God's working, His hand, His efforts, His desires, His plan, that is our confidence. His working his working alone is our confidence. We cannot find rest or hopefulness for the mission of the gospel to go forward in any place other than God's sovereign working hand. Listen, what God wills to do will happen. And our hope is only in the movement of His hand. I want you to see just a few verses from this passage here. Acts 11 verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What is it in that passage that is making these things happen, right? It's the hand of the Lord. It's the hand of the Lord that made the preaching of the Jerusalem witnesses effective. Resulting in the conversions that took place. Then in verse 23 through 24, it says this, And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, speaking of Barnabas here, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. A couple things to note here. The establishment of the congregation in Antioch was according to the grace of God. It wasn't according to their plans to send people here. It was according to the grace of God. It was God's unmerited favor upon these people that brought about the salvations resulting in the congregation, of which we will look more at a little bit later, but the congregation here in Antioch. It was the hand of the Lord. But then further, the work of Barnabas was because he was a man full of the Spirit. 
He was a man full of the Holy Spirit. That's why these things happen. Again, we're going to take an even greater look at this particular aspect of this passage here in a little bit. But I want you to notice that it was the work of the Spirit in Barnabas that brings this about. Our God's working is our confidence. It cannot be ourselves. It cannot be other things. It is God. 11 verse 28, so a little bit, a few verses later. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit. So again, this movement, this, this care, particularly here, a physical care for the needs of the church was by the Spirit. Don't miss this too. This is not mentioned explicitly, but we understand God is sovereign over everything. Well, what happens here is God's providential persecution directs the steps of these people to Antioch. So the persecution that takes place in Jerusalem, these Christians go, oh no, and then they flee, right? Well, what do they flee with? They flee with the gospel. And so when they get to Antioch and these other places, they start talking about the gospel, the same thing that was causing them persecution back in Jerusalem. Well, who was it that was sovereign over the, the persecution in Jerusalem? It was God. Why? Because God is moving them. He's spreading the gospel. There were certainly other reasons, I'm sure, why God was working through the suffering and the persecution in Jerusalem, but it certainly is God's providential persecution that directs their steps to Antioch. It's they go to Antioch not because, listen, this is what I want you to see, they go to Antioch not because they have some great plan or strategy. Oh, you know, well, if we're going to move the gospel forward, we're going to go to this part of the town, and then we're going to go to this part of the town, and then we're going to reach these kind of people, and then we're going to reach this kind of people, and then we're going to move here, and, and that's how we're going to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, what do they do? They go because they're scared. That's why they end up in Antioch. Listen, we can plan all we want when it comes to taking the gospel to other peoples, whether that's working through your plan of reaching the poor, the rich, a friend, a co-worker, or someone across the pond. But ultimately, we must rely on God's sovereign plan. Not our programs and not our plans. We can, we, we, listen, we can make all the plans we want. You can make all the plans and strategies you want in reaching whoever it is that is around you, but ultimately we have to depend on God. If God's not in it, it's not going to happen. But if God is in it, it will happen. Now listen, I'm not saying that, that, that this is telling us, well, don't make plans, right? Just live by the, fly by the seat of your pants and don't be strategic. That's not the point. We can be strategic, and we should be strategic. We should be planning. We should be seeking wisdom and trying to figure out the, maybe the next best conversation to have or, or whether we should reach this part of town and then move to this one de- depending on how God has gifted us as people or as a church and so on and so forth. We can do that, and that's, that's okay, and we should do much of that. But we can't rest there. We can't rest in my ability to scheme up a way to converse with my coworker. We rest in God's sovereignty. We rest in His planning. And His working is our confidence. Listen, we live in a can-do society. We live in self-sufficiency. We are trained to think this way since we are little people. You can do this. You got this. You don't need any help. And if you do need help, then shame on you. 
we have to continually remind ourselves that we can do nothing unless God himself is at work through his spirit in the hearts and minds of people. That's where we have to rest. Let me ask you this question. Could it be that your lack of sharing the gospel is because you're depending on yourself instead of God's hands? That your confidence is in your ability to persuade them or your, your confidence is resting in who you will be if that person rejects you instead of resting in is God sovereign over this place, this person, this relationship? The next thing I want you to see in this passage as we continue to read is that God works through the unity of believers in local churches. He works through the unity of His believers. So He's going to move this gospel forward through the unity of believers. Let's read 27 through 30. Now in these days... Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Just a couple quick points I want you to, to, to note here. God is going to move his mission forward, and he does it largely through two places at this point in the progression, the story. First is this unity among believers in the same local church. Unity among believers in the same local church. Listen, the mission of the gospel is moved forward as believers are unified within a local body. You say, well, where do you see that at? Listen, in order for the kind of ministry, as we're about to look at, that Barnabas does, this ministry of exhortation, it takes a great deal of unity. It takes a great measure of togetherness for this kind of exhortative ministry to take place. So unity among the believers in the same local church, but not just that, not just the unity within the same four walls of a group of people, but unity among local churches together, something we've not been good at. Look, the believers in Judea see the needs of the church in Antioch, and they send help. What do you see in this part of the story? Some gave and some received. I mean, you can't miss this. It takes humility to receive, and it takes loving care to give. So those who are, who are receiving have to be willing to say, hey, we're in need, and, and we will receive that. And and that takes a big measure of humility because what? It's an it's a, it's a admission of lack of sufficiency, which we are all taught to, to grab a hold of from the time we were born. You need to be sufficient on your own. And here's a church saying we're not sufficient. We will receive the help. But it also takes loving care to get our eyes off of ourselves and recognize the needs of other people. That's both true individually and true as a church corporately. Listen, the partnership between the church in Antioch and the churches in Jerusalem and in Ju uh, thrived because why? Believers in Antioch did not, did not feel inferior to the believers in the mother church. They sent, they gave aid. They received help. You know, in thinking about church partnerships, it's, it's important 
that we think about how we can better care for other churches, how we can send aid, or how we can come alongside. Like we need to, as a church, think and ask how we can partner together to do things for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this area, in this region. This is important. It's something that we want to work on over this next year, these next couple years, particularly as a church, is how can we partner better with other churches for the sake of the gospel? Now, certainly we, we could just partner with any church. I mean, there's, there's certain guidelines and like a sense of doctrinal unity and those kind of things that we have to think through and be careful about. And, but nevertheless... If we're going to see the gospel not just reach this, this little area in which you and I live and the neighborhoods in which we live, but see the gospel reach a region, we want to think about these things. How can we better cooperate and partner with other churches for the good of the gospel and for the, for, for the sake of the gospel, for the good of this region? So God works God's working is our confidence, but God works through unity of believers in local churches. Next, let's read 22 through 25. The report of this came, right, so the report of the salvations taking place in Antioch came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And in response, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. We're going to kind of camp out here for the most part the rest of our time today. Because if we want to talk about how we move the gospel forward, how we're to be unified as a church, how we unified with other churches, how we are going to get over our prejudices, how we are going to seek to value the same things that God values. We desperately need what is talked about in these three verses. Listen, God works through the human ministry of exhortation. God works through the human ministry of exhortation. And we're going to flesh this this thought here out for the remainder of our time. God works through the human ministry of exhortation. So the church in Jerusalem, right? follow, follow me here. The church in Jerusalem hears about the people in Antioch coming to faith in Christ. And the church in Jerusalem then sends Barnabas. Go, Barnabas, minister in Antioch. He is sent with a specific mission, as we are about to see. You know, the name Barnabas actually means son of comfort. So they send son of comfort to these new believers. They send him to strengthen the church. And as we'll see, they, they send him to do discipleship. They send him to disciple these new Believers. Now, first off, I want you to notice the character of the exhorter. Notice the character of Barnabas. It says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. To this man, they're sending to do discipleship, is a man who's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Here's what I want you to see the competency of Barnabas is linked not with some strategy or plan 
but with the integrity of his character, the transforming power of the Spirit, and faith. Let me repeat that for you again. His competency is linked with the integrity of his character, the transforming power of the Spirit, and faith. Listen, as we think as, as a church how to move the gospel forward in people's lives, what's most important is, again, not our plans and not our devices. It's our character, the Spirit, and faith. It's our character, the Spirit, and faith. Even as we think about uh, leaders in, our, in this church, as, our, as your elders think about developing leaders and such in this church to help people move towards Christ we are less worried about strategy and organization. Listen, there's so much in our culture today. Well, you've got to get the people with the right skills to get the right job done. And, but listen, character is way more valuable. We're more worried about character. For example, are people trustworthy or deceitful? Do they hide things? Are they humble or prideful? Can they receive critique? Or do they run from it? Are people self-sufficient or dependent? Do they see the value of counsel? Are they walking in the Spirit? Are they depending on the Lord? Let me read to you a quote I read this week. It says this, We cannot help people abide in the Lord apart from godliness and the fullness of the Spirit to produce godly people, we too must be godly. To produce people who walk close to God, we must too walk close to God. We must walk close to God. Barnabas, he says, was a good man, full of the Spirit and faith. You say, well, aren't you saying that, okay, so now, now man's got to depend on the character of man. Well, what is the righteous character of man? Who's doing that ultimately, right? The Spirit's doing that. That's why he's full of the Spirit. He has this character that, that reflects God and that is an outworking of God's work in his life. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. So what did he do? What did, what did Barnabas do here in Antioch? He encouraged them. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. Let's, let's talk about this. And if you could be nerdy with me for just a few moments. The word for exhort here is the word parakaleo. Right, and some of you nerds are like nerding out for me. Okay, just hang. Keep going with it. All right. There's really two parts to this word, right? Para and kaleo. Those are Two separate words that come together to form parakaleo. Kaleo is this idea of to call, to point people toward a goal or a truth. Another way to say it is like to call out. Like to call out, to point out. Para means to come alongside, to be sympathetic. To be gentle and tender, if you will. Parakaleo. To call out, to point people toward a goal or truth. To para, to come alongside, to be sympathetic, to be gentle. 
you should be thinking, how do those two words go together? They seem like opposites. Like to call out is aggressive. It's pointed. Listen, to tell someone where they need to go or what they need to do, that's potentially abrasive. On the other hand, to come alongside or to be sympathetic, gentle, tender. For many of us, we would call that loving. And our loving would be limited to that. Like, do you, do you feel the tension in these two words? How do they, how do they fit together? How does this work? This is what we're going to talk about the remainder of our time. But I like what Keller said this. He said, Timothy Keller said this. It's a He would define it this way. It's a sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. What is parakaleo? What is exhortation? What is the word used here in Acts? It's a sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. What is it? It's a mixture of truth and love. It's a mixture of truth and love. What I want you to see from this text is that God works when God's people exhort. When God's people do parakaletic ministry. That's why, like, when you look at this passage, like, just the word encourage is, is not strong enough. It doesn't, like, encourage can just be like, oh, it's okay, you know, pat someone on the back, you'll be alright, Jesus loves you, and then you send them on their way. But at the same time, like to rebuke somebody might, is maybe too strong of a word because it, it kind of lacks the tenderness and sympathetic aspect of, of this. This word here is both and. It's, it's no, you need to believe this, but it's a tenderness and a gentleness that comes alongside. And when, these, when this happens, when this ministry happens, God works. He doesn't only work in the ministry of exhortation, but He certainly works in the ministry of, ex, of exhortation, the ministry of parakaleo, this ministry is crucial. And it's not just for those who have a spiritual gifting in exhortation, as we've talked about as a church. It's a ministry that everyone must be a part of, both on the giving and the receiving side. I want you to notice in this passage, we don't have time to look at all these details, but notice in this passage that you have both evangelism and teaching taking place in this passage, but right in the middle, you have perichoretic ministry. What I want you to notice here, that, that Barnabas did not go to Antioch to do evangelism. He went to do perichoretic ministry. And what happened though? What was the result of this ministry of parakaleo, what was the result of this, this ministry of exhortation? In verse 24, the second part, it says this, And a great many people were added to the Lord. So what happens? Because of this ministry in the church, the church grew. One person said it was like everything was sent on hyperdrive. The Lord blessed it. They began reaching out. They grew impassioned for sharing the gospel. Why? Because someone was doing parakaletic ministry. Because someone was bringing about, was doing discipleship with, with truth and love, with insistence, but sympathy. 
Listen, I, I would argue that this is necessary. This environment of paracolytic ministry is necessary for spiritual growth. And I'm going to spend this time arguing for that the next little bit of our time. It is necessary for spiritual growth. It's necessary, necessary for each person's spiritual growth. Without placing yourself in this kind of position to receive parakaleo type ministry, you will not grow into the person God has called you to. You will not. You cannot. Why? Let me give you a couple arguments for why. First of all, Barnabas exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So he comes to do parakaleo, and what he's encouraging them to is that the root of Christian existence, right? Is to, to, uh, or the, the root of our faith is to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Let me ask just, just a quick question. What purposes do you give yourself to? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about yesterday? What purposes were, was I giving myself to? Was I being faithful to the Lord? A lot of us give our purpose, uh, find ourselves giving uh, the purposes that we have to become a master of the things that we want to do. If I can't be a master of it, then I don't want to do it. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to be a master of it. Or to have influence in all the areas of my life that are important to me. Or we give ourselves to the purpose of avoiding conflict and stress at all costs. Or to give and to act in such a way to get someone's approval no matter what. So Barnabas comes to do parakaleo to encourage them towards, to be faithful to the Lord. And, and the, the implication here is that in order to be faithful to the Lord and steadfast purpose is that they need parakaleo. They need someone to exhort them to this cause, to this point, to this goal, if you will. Another reason that we need this type of ministry, and I think Keller is spot on here to quote him again, is that we are all insecure. Every last one of us. Now there are people in this room even that appear to be secure, self-confident. But you know deep down inside that you're not. That it's just a show. Listen, because of our insecurity, we are always self-justifying our purposes and our faithfulness to things other than God. We're always convincing ourselves that we are fine or right or good in our purpose. We're always saying, well, you would be faithful to the things I'm faithful if you had the past that I have. Put it this way, we're always spinning the truth towards ourselves. We always twist it to, to make ourselves feel better, to make us feel more justified, to feel more right, to feel more approved, to feel more in control, to, to feel more persuasive, to feel more like a master. We spin the truth to make ourselves feel better. Why? Because we're insecure. And here's the reality. You will never change the way God has called you to change unless someone does paracoletic ministry to you. Let me keep pushing this argument. If someone just comes at you with the truth, someone just comes and just throws the truth right in your face, 
you will find a way to dismiss what they're saying. You will justify it away. You will twist it. You will, you will attack their character so you don't have to listen to what they're saying. You, you'll find some way to dismiss it. On the other hand, if someone only loves you and affirms you and never challenges you, you will, you will use it to affirm your own agenda. You will use it to feel better about this is, this is who I am. And Listen, this kind of ministry is hard. Parakaleo is a hard. Because here's the deal, on the, on the giving side of this, so now I was talking about the receiving side, now I'm talking about the giving side, we either want to affirm everyone so that they like us and or we avoid conflict, or we lack patience and tenderness because we want to be persuasive and controlling. But here's what happens. As soon as Barnabas does paracletic ministry, they start growing. Listen, God works when God's people exhort. So you go, okay, okay, all right. What does this look like? Let's talk about what this looks like. First of all, it's a shameless plug for our DNA groups. It looks like one-on-two or a one-on-three discipleship. But listen, this type of ministry, paracletic ministry, cannot and should not and will not be limited to DNA. But here's the deal. Our goal in our DNA, which is our one-on-two, one-on-three discipleship, is to create a culture of paracletic ministry that permeates every aspect and every nook and cranny of our church. That's our goal, unashamedly. Our goal is to create a culture of paracletic ministry. That it would permeate our eldership. That it would permeate our worship permeate our children's ministry, permeate our house gatherings, everywhere. This is where we train people for paracletic ministry, where we equip the saints to do what Barnabas is doing here in Acts 11. Man, in, in my DNA gathering this past week, we had... Like an hour, hour and a half of just awesome paracletic ministry. And it was such a blessing. Like it was, it was good. It was good for everybody's heart sitting at the table. But again, the, it doesn't look like just these groups. It, it's just, that's just an, a place of incubation. It's a place where we kind of try to grow that and foster that. It would take over the rest of our church. And in many ways, it has. Let me tie it back, this back for you here in this direct context. How, uh, talking about overcoming prejudices and, and moving the gospel towards the nations, how are we going to overcome these prejudices that we have, that we've been talking about for the past few weeks? Do you realize this, that you have prejudices that you don't even realize you have? Let me ask you this, how are you going to discover those? I mean, you've been, you've been spending 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 60 years convincing yourself you don't have them. Let me ask you another question. How are we going to be more unified with people who are not like us? People who are like us in the gospel, but not like us in our tastes and preferences? Listen, none of us are prone to move in that direction. None of us are prone to, to be more accepting of other people. None of us are prone to, 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 to these kinds of things. 
Do you understand how long it takes to turn a huge ship? Right? Like the idea the bigger the ship is, the, the longer it takes to, to turn this thing. It takes, a, a, what, it takes the, the constant work of the rudder and the constant work of the engine pushing this thing along. Earlier this week, I had a, a pastor friend of mine call me at 9.15. And I know when this, this friend calls me at, after hours, uh, that there's something going on. Uh, so I answered it. Those, those, those are, you don't go to voicemail. And he was struggling. He was hurting. Some of it because he had been sinned against. Legitimately. Clearly. Obviously. Some of it because he had sin in his own heart. We had 50 minutes of paracolytic ministry. He needed it. He knew he needed it. That's why he picked up the phone and called. His opening words were, I just need a friend. Hebrews 3.17. Let me, again, push this forward. Hebrews 3.17 says this, but encourage one another daily. We've preached on this passage before, so I'm not going to spend long here. But he says, be encourage, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I just want you quickly to notice two words here. The word encourage. Do you know what that word is? It's parakaleo. Imagine that. Notice the other word, uh, well, there's lots of words here, but notice sin's deceitfulness. Notice the description of sin. It's deceitful. What's the idea of sin being deceitful? Here's the deal. Let me, let me help you to, to be straight to the point. You and I have sin that we are in denial about. We have sin in us that we don't believe or don't know is even there. You have sin that has you deceived. That's the point of Hebrews 3.17. It's not just that you have sin and you need someone to come help you with the sin. It's, it's that you have sin that is deceiving you, that you don't even recognize you have. And unless someone comes to you and does parakaleo to you, you will never see that sin. That's the point of Hebrews 3.17. Like, how are you going to discover that you're motivated to do things for the wrong reasons when you sit there and spin the truth so that it supports what you want, what you like? Listen, you will only grow if you are regularly in the soil of paracletic ministry. I can, I can tell you from a, from a pastoral vantage point that it is usually very obvious who is receiving paracletic ministry and who isn't. Whether they get it formally or informally, it is usually, usually very clear. This text, going back to the example of the ship, this text, Hebrews 3.17, indicates that you need this daily. Daily. 
Yes, you need paracolytic ministry daily. Let me encourage you with just a couple points of wisdom, I think. That would be good in application for us. Your spouse, your siblings are probably not going to be the best one for this, although they can and should even be a part of it. I think this is good. Here's, again, your spouse is likely either going to be very truth-driven and impatient, or they might be too affirming and loving. Like, there's dynamics in a spousal relationship that are really hard to overcome. Really hard. On the other hand, so, so that, again, that's on the giver of the exhortation. That's going to be hard for them to, to do what needs to be done. On the other hand, on the receiving side, listen, you know your sibling and your spouse well enough to very easily justify away what's being said. You have all sorts of defense mechanisms built up in you to deal with these people. You will spin it. You know how to spin it. You know the evil things in their life that make you feel better about yourself in order to justify away what they're delivering to you. But according to this text, again, we need this daily. So if you're on the receiving side, you need to gather these kinds of people around you and see them regularly. Ask for it. Ask for it. I'd also encourage you with this too. You must give grace to those trying to do it. (laughs) Because they may not be doing it very well. I try to do paracletic ministry with you every Sunday morning. Sometimes it comes across as very abrasive and harsh and I'm not being very sympathetic and gentle and loving and maybe probably rarely, but maybe sometimes it's the other way where I'm too affirming and loving and not very, you know, that's, that's usually not my error. Uh, it's usually the other way. So I thank you for being gracious. That's why I bring that up. Well, again, we'll talk more on what this looks like in just a few minutes. But what I want you to see is that God works when God's people give exhortation and when God's people receive exhortation. Again, another implication of this passage in verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great, because of what happened now, a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas exhorts them to, to keep about the task, right, to preach Christ. Do not give yourself to any other purpose. And then the Lord blessed their faithfulness to the Lord with steadfast purpose. All right, so here, here's where we're at. We are terrible at exhorting. I hope you feel that way. I hope you're like, oh, man, if that's what exhortation looks like. On the other hand, you and I terribly need it. I hope you see that. I hope you're convinced. I need paracletic ministry. I hope you also sense, like, I don't always want it. I don't always think I need it. Maybe you're sitting there right now going, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good. What are we to do? What are we to do? We need it. We're bad at it. God uses it. What are we to do? My last 
thought here. God works to move the exhorter and the exhorted through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll spend the rest of our time fleshing this out. God works to move the exhorter and the exhorted through the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 23 through 24 once again. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And so that's what he did. For he was a good man. Here's his character. And then he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So here we come, full circle. God's working is our confidence in taking the gospel to each other and to the nations. But to do this, we need help. We need the exhortation of brothers and sisters because without it, we will place confidence in ourselves, in our pastors, in programs. We'll be blind to our prejudices. We'll seek unity with those that affirm our prejudices. We desperately need exhortation, but we are terrible at it. But Barnabas, because he was full of the Holy Spirit, was good at this. This idea of sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. Because of the Spirit's work in him. But here's the question. Is it just enough to say, if you want to do paracletic ministry, if you want to receive paracletic ministry, then just be full of the Spirit? What if we just ended right there? Said, go be full of the Spirit, you will do paracletic ministry. I mean, I I would personally walk away going, fantastic. Thanks, Pastor. I have no clue what to even do with that. But he's full of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? Listen, uh, uh, Keller was again very helpful in connecting a couple points here for me. So I'll make sure I give credit. Listen, the role of the Holy Spirit, how does the Spirit work? Like, it, how is the Spirit working in Barnabas here? We have to look at a couple different passages to connect these dots. If you have time later this week, go read John 13, 14, 15. This is the upper room discourse, right? When Jesus is in the upper room having the Last Supper and so on and so forth with the disciples. Just to briefly describe that story. The disciples have been with Jesus for three years at this point. They have come to the upper room where Jesus has washed their feet. And now Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to depart from you. I've been with you for three years but I'm going to leave you now. And if you watch the responses of some of the people there, Peter is saying, no, no, Jesus, I will die with you. Peter would go on to deny Jesus three times, right? But I will die with you. Thomas is saying, Lord, tell us where you are going. Just tell us where you're going and we'll go. Philip is saying, show us the Father and that will be enough. It's, it's, it's so sad, but telling Jesus at this moment says, I think I've been with you for three years and you still don't know who I am? But then he tells them a handful of truths, but then in verse 15 of chapter 14 he says this, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. What do you think the word for advocate is there? It's paraclete. 
It's paraclete. It's the noun form of parakleo. He's called, the Spirit here is called the other advocate. Or another advocate. Your ESV translates it helper. He'll be another advocate. Jesus is the first advocate. And the Holy Spirit is the other advocate or the second advocate. You're going, whoa, 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 wait a second. We got two advocates? What's, what's going on here? I thought we just had one. It was Jesus. Why? Jesus is the first advocate. The Holy Spirit is the other advocate or the second advocate. Why? Right, you've, we've, we've talked about this before. Jesus, right? When he is in the courtroom of God on our behalf, the defense attorney, if you will, the, the counselor. He says to the father, I know that this child, that this person here, that this daughter here, that, that they have sinned and their sin is great. I'm not denying the depth of their depravity, father. But father, according to justice, your justice, according to the justice that, that comes from your character and who you are, it requires one payment. Not two payments. And I have paid the price for them. It would be unjust of you, God, to, to Father, to, it would be unjust of you to, to take two payments for them. I have taken the first payment. I have paid this price. And because of that, when the Father sees His redeemed child, He sees them as perfect, as beautiful, as wonderful. As they stand there washed in the blood of Christ because of our advocate, Jesus, before the throne of God. But now, this is how the Holy Spirit encourages, exhorts, does a sympathetic insistence on the truth. How He does parakaleo to us. Listen, just as, just as the first advocate speaks for you to God, Jesus. The second advocate speaks to you for you. Let me, let me explain that. The first advocate speaks to you or for you to God, on behalf of you to God. The second advocate speaks to you for you. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit talks to you about the first advocate. He talks to you about the first advocate, but not just talking. He didn't just say it. He does parakaleo. That's his purpose. That's his, that's his point. That's his job description. He is sympathetic and lovingly insisting on you believing the truth. He gives you both truth in love. He does both. What truth? What love? What does this, what does this look like? So what, is, what does parakaleo look like with the Spirit inside of us? Here's what it looks like. He says, look what Christ has done. Look! Look what Christ has done. He says to your heart and to your mind, He, the Spirit, makes Christ glorious to you. He says, look at the cost Jesus paid for your sin. 
He says, look at what he gave up in coming to the earth to earn your righteousness. Look at the pain he endured to call you his own. Look at how much Christ loves you. And he says to us, why is it, why is it you, like, like, look at him. Why are you looking at these other things? Look at him. Look how glorious Christ is. Look how much he loves you. And then he says to us, why are you so upset? Why are you so anxious? Why do you need that other person's affirmation? Why do you need to have mastery over all these things in your life? Why do you feel this need to avoid stress at all costs? Or why do you feel like you have to have power over these things or these people? Why is it that you can't humbly hear when someone is critiquing your life? Why is it you can't be exhorted or you're not going to be exhorted and seeking it out? Why is it you don't run and gather people around you who will love you and tell you the truth just as I'm doing right now? Why is it you can't be vulnerable with other people about your sins? He says to us, lift up your eyes. He loves you. You rest. Your rest is in Him. Your identity is in Him. He's in control. He has mastery over your life and everything else. He knows all your faults, and He is powerfully persuading all the people around you. Trust. Believe. Repent of your sins. What does the Spirit do? He gives us love and truth. He's the second advocate saying, look at the first advocate. Turn from your sin. Look at the first advocate. Don't look at these things. Look at the first advocate. Why would you settle for that over there, for these idols over here, when you can worship the first advocate, the one who actually gave his life for you? When when it talks about the Spirit being our helper, like that's at the very root of what it means for him to help us. It's for him to do parakaleo. And what he insists upon with love and tenderness is, child of God, look how glorious Jesus is. Turn from these things. Why would you ever settle there? And listen, the only way you and I will ever do parakaleo or receive parakaleo is for you to get the Holy Spirit encouraging you this way. Talking to you about the first advocate. Stop doing these sins. Look at Christ. Look at Christ. He's not only better than those sins that you keep indulging in, but he paid for those sins. The last thing I want you to see is this. Because of the paracletic ministry in this church, the results of chapter 11, we really begin to see on beautiful display in chapter 13. The first three verses of chapter 13, let me read these to you. So just, again, so just connect these dots. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Sit apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You say, okay, well, that's cool. No, 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 this is, this is awesome. This is awesome. You noticed in the text we read that up until this point, they were sharing the gospel with only the Jews, and then some went to the Hellenists. Right, see, up until this point, you have the salvation of Cornelius, who was a God-fearer. He was someone already reading the Bible. And, and then you had the salvation of the Ethiopian eunuch, who was already a God-fearer, reading the Scriptures. And you had the Samaritans, those who were God-fearers, reading the Scriptures, and so on and so forth. But then the Hellenists. The Hellenists in this passage is the, the first time we see an example of the gospel going to people who were polytheists. People who were worshiping many other gods. These were not God-fearers. These were not people who were reading the Scriptures already. This is the first time it goes to that group of people. And then Barnabas goes down, this paracletic ministry, and, and people are being discipled, and people are growing in their faithfulness to the Lord and with steadfast purpose towards sharing the gospel, living faithfully for God. And then we read this passage, and you go, what's so special about this passage? Look, Barnabas was who? You see, Barnabas is a character in this part of the story. He's a Jewish man. Then you see Simeon called Niger. Who is that? It's a black man. You have Lucius of Cyrene. Where is this at? This would have been a man from northern Africa. Probably an Arabic man. Then you have Menaean. Who is that guy? Where is he from? Like, what's going on here? This is a wealthy man. A wealthy man. We don't know a ton about him, but we know he was a wealthy man. He was someone who was a friend of Herod. And you have Paul, a Jewish scholar, right? An academic. Do you see what's happening right here in Acts 13? Because of this ministry in Antioch, and the people being exhorted towards faithfulness to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Here, we have our first multi-ethnic, we have our first multi-economic uh, group of people worshiping the Lord. Listen, because the people were experiencing paracletic ministry, truth and love, gentle, yet insistence on the truth, right here in 13, we see the nations worshiping God. Let's pray. I pray that we would catch a vision for multiple things here, Father, but we'd catch a vision for, first of all, your love and desire to save and unify a people from all the nations of the world. Our poor neighbor down the road, our wealthy neighbor across the street, the African down at our workplace, Father, the, the Muslim who we see walking to prayer. 
uh, the single mom in the grocery store. Father, whoever it is, whatever their outlook on life, Father, give us a vision, give us a, a love for these things that you love, and that they would all be worshiping you around your throne. And then, Father, also help us understand that if we're going to get there, we need paracolytic ministry. We need a Barnabas in our life. And we all need to be a Barnabas. So, Father, pray that just give us a heart to see these things. But most importantly, Father, understand that if the Spirit is not doing this in us, it's not going to happen. Father, may we, maybe for some of us, wake up and see the ministry of the Spirit in us doing this. Father, may we read your scriptures and feed this ministry of the Spirit in us. Father, may your Spirit awaken some of us because we're just cold or maybe even spiritually dead. Father, I ask these things for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand?